0: till internationell författarscen Jag heter Athena Farosad Och jag heter Ida Linde och vi är programansvariga
1: för litteraturen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern
0: Alldeles strax ska ni få höra författaren Linton Creasy-Johnson i samtal med Judith Kiros Varmt välkomna
2: Last time I was in Stockholm, we did a gig with the Dennis Bovell dub band. And I have some good memories, and some not so good memories <laughs> of, of um, Sweden. When I began to make records, uh, Sweden is one of the first places I, I toured with the, with the band. And um, we stayed in some terrible hotels. And, uh, but the audiences were wonderful. <laughs> and I am very happy to be here with you tonight, sitting here on stage with this beautiful young woman um, <laughs> from Ethiopian ancestry. Oh, yes. You know, Jamaicans are crazy about Ethiopia. <laughs> So, I'm honoured.
1: <laughs> I, I am the one who's honoured. Um, when I got the question, would you like to, to uh, mo- uh, sort of lead a talk with Linton Kwesi Johnson, I almost fell over because I was so excited. Um, I am writing part of my dissertation about Linton, but I promised him not to ask any questions to do with the dissertation tonight. And... Um, Um, I feel like I'm also doing all of you, uh, like a huge kind of, you're all welcome, basically. You
2: can ask me about your dissertation. No, no, no,
1: no, it's very dull. (laughs) But I will be taking notes, absolutely. You wanted to start with reading a short excerpt.
2: Yes, um, one of the the pieces in this um, Selected Prose book is um, an essay... I wrote as a lecture, um, which I gave at uh, Leeds University, and it was an It was the, the Arthur Ravenscroft Memorial Lecture, mm-hmm. and um, I wrote it because in 2002 I was published by Penguin in their Modern Classics list. And it created panic amongst the literary establishment in England. Some people were outraged that someone like me could have been published in this list. Um, it, was, it made the front page of the Daily Telegraph newspaper, you know, the mm. right-wing establishment yeah. newspaper. Um, expressing consternation at the fact that the fortifications mm. of the canon of British literature had been breached by this upstart. Mm. You know, um, so by way of repost, I wrote this uh, lecture essay um, called Writing Reggae, Politics, Poetry, and Popular Culture, as a way of saying this is who I am mm. and this as a poet and this is where I'm coming from and these are the roots of my poetics. So um, it's a long essay so I'll just read little, some little bits and pieces. I can't find the part where I said I was gonna read from. Um, uh, okay. I came to poetry through politics. As a teenager in the late 60s, I was swept along in the tidal wave of black consciousness consciousness that came in the wake of the civil rights movement in the United States of America. I joined the British Black Panther movement and discovered black literature. Discovering books written by black authors about black people was a revelation to me because nothing in my schooling in the UK had given me the slightest hint that such a body of writing existed. I'm a slow reader, but I read as avidly as I could history, politics, philosophy, and creative writing. I didn't understand a lot of what I read, but one book in particular left a deep and lasting impression on me. The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. One sentence that registered on my consciousness was when he wrote about the problem of the 20th century being the problem of the color line. Du Bois wrote movingly about the shadow of the veil that blighted black life in the USA. What I found amazing about this was that Du Bois was making those observations at the dawning of the 20th century. Moreover, although Du Bois had written about the experiences of African Americans in the immediate post-emancipation period, that's the period just after slavery was abolished, I could relate what I read to my own experience. The souls of black folk changed my life. It awakened something within me and I felt an urgent need to express myself, to articulate my thoughts and feelings about the black experience in Britain. That is how my engagement with poetry began. One of the first books of poems I read was a thin volume of of African-American poetry, simply titled titled Black Poetry. The 25 poets featured included Anna Botham, Gwendolyn Brooks, County Cullen, Langston Hughes, Leroy Jones, a.k.a. Amiri Baraka, Claude McKay, Sonia Sanchez, Don L. Lee, and Margaret Walker. I was immediately struck by the range of style, form, language, and themes, from the sonnets of Mackay and Cullen, the lyrical elegance of Gene Toomer, Dudley Randall's wit, Brooks's powerful call to action, Jones's unusual diction, and Lee's hip street language. Black poetry whetted my appetite for poetry and set me on a journey on a journey of discovery. In the Black Panther movement, I got to hear recordings of the last poets who, like Lee, used the everyday language of black Americans as the vehicle of their poetic discourse accompanied by drums. Then I found out about New Beacon Books, Britain's first black publishing house and bookshop. I had no idea at the time that New Beacon was the source of most of the black literature I found in the Panthers. The bookshop was located in the front room of its founders, John LaRose and Sarah White, in in Finsbury Park. Um, My first visit to the shop lasted an entire afternoon, most of which was spent talking to John LaRose, one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. Through him, I got to meet Andrew Salke, the Jamaican poet, novelist, and broadcaster. They both became my mentors and introduced me to a whole range of literature, including poetry by Amy Cesaire from Martinique, Kamau Brathwaite, Barbados, Okot Bibtek, Uganda, Christopher Okigbo, Nigeria, Chikaya Yotamsi, Congo, Derek Walcott, St. Lucia, Martin Carter, Guyana, and Bongo Jerry, Jamaica, as well as literary journals from the Caribbean like BIM and Savako. In 1966, Kamau Brathwaite, John LaRose, and Andrew Salke founded the Caribbean Artist Movement a unique coming together of Caribbean writers, visual and performing artists and intellectuals whose impact continues to reverberate in Britain and the Caribbean. I caught the tail end of the movement in the early 70s. I consider myself a beneficiary of Cam's legacy. I am what the cooling embers of the movement spawned. In the preface to her book on the Caribbean artist movement, Anne Wormsley writes of the organization's aims and objectives, quote, they sought to discover their own aesthetic and to chart new directions for the arts and culture, to become acquainted with their history, to rehabilitate their Amerindian inheritance, and to reinstate their African roots. To re-establish links with the folk through incorporating the people's language and musical rhythms in Caribbean literature, to reassert their own tradition in the face of a dominant tradition. Uh, blah, 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 blah blah. In 1972 um, now let's skip that. Um, my Black Panther experience had given me a solid political grounding. We had studied Eric Williams's *Capitalism and Slavery*, W. E. B. Du Bois's *Black Reconstruction in America*, C. L. R. James's *The Black Jacobins*, E. P. Thompson's *The Making of the English Working Class*, Franz Fanon's *The Wretched of the Earth* and bits of Marx, Lenin, and Mao. I was now in a better position to locate myself in the world. I opted, I go on to talk about my engagement with poetry. And then I said, in the end, I opted mostly for the language I was most comfortable with and confident in my first language, Jamaican Creole, or what Kamau Brathwaite calls nation language. I made other choices too. I wanted to write poetry that was accessible to those whose experiences I was writing about, namely the black community. I wanted to write verse that was relevant that people could relate to their everyday experience. I wanted to write oral poetry that could hold the interest of the reader as well as the listener. I heard music in language, and I wanted to write word music, verse anchored by the one drop beat of reggae with meter measured by the bass line. I wanted to write lines like sounded like a bass line or drum patterns. Having made these choices, I embarked on a long apprenticeship in search of this elusive thing called poetry.
1: Thank you so much. I've as you can see, prepared a lot of questions. But when we spoke earlier, you said you prefer spontaneous conversation.
2: Yeah, but it's good to prepare, you yeah. know, instead of, of coming and talking off the top of your head.
1: Of course. Uh, I respect that. But there are so many things that you mentioned now that I'm so curious about. Um, and one of them is, I think for a Swedish audience, we and overall, we're more familiar with the black American radical tradition mm. than the English one. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the political context in which you started writing. So the British Black Panthers, the Caribbean Artists Movement. Yeah.
2: Um, my generation of black youth growing up in a racially hostile environment, which is what England was, um, we got swept along in the tidal wave of black consciousness. And... Um, Our parents, my parents, they were like big supporters of Martin Luther King Mm. and the civil rights movement in the United States of America, and this kind of a um, Gandhi-like philosophy of non-violent resistance to racism and all that. My generation, we uh, embraced black power, and our slogan was black power, people's power, and, our hero was not Dr. Martin Luther King. I mean, Dr. Martin Luther King is a man I respect now, but when I was a youth, my hero and our hero was Malcolm X, who said freedom and justice by any means necessary. And um, um, we read a lot of the, the literature that was coming out of the United States, and the Black Panther movement more or less adopted the, 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 the stance of the Black Panther Party in the United States of America and we had more or less had the same 10-point program mm. of demands um, and so on. We sold the, America, the Black Panther uh, Party paper. When I joined the Black Panther movement, one of my jobs was to go out to the local markets In Brixton, in Croydon, in Balham, to sell the American Black Panther Party paper as well as our own newspaper. Um, So, um, what was happening in the United States of America had a big impact on us in England.
1: Mm. What sort of conversations did you have? When you were out there working with the Black Panthers and selling their things with people in Durban um, and Croydon and so on,
2: yeah, we didn't have much much of conversations. <laughs> people people either just ignored you and, <laughs>
1: and went oh, the about their
2: the <laughs> business shopping, or some people, you know, would say yes, yes, my youth, mm. and and buy one of your papers and mm. all that. You know, we didn't have long conversations, but. Another one of our um, duties, before you could become a member of the Black Panther, you had to be in the youth section. Another one of our jobs was to go door to door in our communities and tell people, inform people about the organization. And of course, some of the people we would be talking to would be like, our parents' generation. You know, You're trying to convince someone like your mother <laughs> Um, That this is an organization that they should be supporting or involved. Sometimes they would just close the door. Um,
1: My mother would have.
2: uh, And (laughs) sometimes they would engage you in conversation, you know. And um, uh, sometimes it was positive, sometimes it was negative, and sometimes there was no conversation at all.
1: Mm. I think it's uh, interesting the way you describe the difference between the parents' generation and your generation, what do you think the biggest difference is there?
2: I think the biggest difference between my generation and my parents' generation was the fact that my parents' generation were limited. They felt as, we didn't, we didn't realize but they were. They felt as strongly as we did about um, being treated as Third-class citizens, um, they felt as strongly about racial hostility against us because we were coming. We were coming from one of Britain, the, the British colonies. You know, my mother came, went to England on a British passport. You know, mm. we were members of the Commonwealth, so to speak, part of the British Empire. Mm. They felt as strongly and as indignant as we did. However. They had responsibility. Mm. They couldn't just simply walk off a job if they were racially abused. Although sometimes they did it, mm. <coughs> they had to consider putting bread on the table. They had to think about the rent. You know, they had to think about where the food was going to be coming from and all the rest of it. And they had some of them had to think about sending money back to Jamaica or Barbados or Trinidad or wherever for um, the other children that they'd left behind because they couldn't bring everybody with them. My generation, we were unfettered. We didn't have any responsibility. And some of the things our parents tolerated, they didn't tolerate it because they were Uncle Toms or they were reactionary or whatever. Um, they tolerated them because they, didn't, they had little choice mm. um, but we didn 't have we were unfettered we didn 't have the same uh, limitations mm. and you know um, in England nowadays they like to talk about the windrush generation, the windrush generation because a ship called the Windrush brought some people after the second world war, but basically it 's the post World War Two generation of, pine, of 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 pioneering Caribbean migrants. My mentor, John LaRose, called them the heroic generation because they were heroes. Mm. They established a solid foundation. They did what they could. They fought back in the the best way they could. They established a solid foundation for my generation to build upon. And, um, yeah.
1: Exactly. I think... um Um, I know you've mentioned this um, as well in interviews and so on, so I won't repeat it, but we need this sense of history in activism, right? Of understanding that the previous generation always lays a foundation for the coming one.
2: Indeed, and I hope um, that, um, I think it's important that the Black Lives Matter generation um, you know, appraise themselves of what had gone on before, because I mean, you know, in the 1990s, there was such a huge hiatus, um, a huge gap between the generations, a huge break in continuity of knowledge, that you know, somebody asks some guy in in the Bronx, some youth in the Bronx in America, in New York. Do you, know, you know who Malcolm X is? And he said, yeah, he's a rapper, isn't he? You know. So it's important um, for uh, you know, the, the young activists of today to understand that they, they, don't, they don't have to reinvent the wheel. Mm. The wheel has been invented already. They just got to keep it turning.
1: Why do you think there has been that break the gap.
2: <clears throat> well, that's the nature of history, you know. Um, um, we forget things, and um, different um, periods. In different periods, you know, when people move on from one era to another, you know, that knowledge is. That's why it's important to have. Um, uh, institutions that have archives, mm. and that young people can access these archives. We have a, a, an archive in, in in London called the George Padmore Institute, and the George Padmore Institute archives um, go back about 60, 70 years, um, where people, young people, can find material about what was what was going on in their parents' and grandparents' generation in terms of the history of struggle, the struggles for racial equality and social justice, you know, archival material and all the various movements we had and and the victories we fought and how we fought them, battles we won, battles we lost.
1: I was thinking one of the standout things about this book, when you describe um, the kind of artistic movement in which you were active, is the autonomous institutions mm-hmm. you built. Um, the Caribbean Artists Movement, you mentioned that, the British Black Panthers, but also, but also the Cascade Art Center, um, and the, of course, International Book Fair of Radical and Third World Books. Radical,
2: Black, and Third World Books, yeah. yeah.
1: Can you talk a bit about that, the importance of building autonomous institutions?
2: Well, we had no choice because when we arrived in Britain, there was something called the color bar. You know, there were no-go areas. There were certain places you couldn't go. I remember as a teenager, um, you know, there were certain discotheques that they wouldn't admit black youth, you know. Were the parts um, of London that were? Yeah, yeah, the all that, in England in general. Mm-hmm. And um, there were certain places you didn't go because you know you wouldn't be welcomed. So um, the, the thing is, is that some of our parents' generation um, had a history of activism before they came to England. Um, they were involved in the anti-colonial movement in the struggle for independence, you know, for national liberation. Uh, And they brought those experiences to bear on our situation in England. So, you know, we had to build... You weren't allowed to join certain sports clubs, so we started our own football teams. The girls started their own netball netball teams. Um, We... Evolved a subculture of resistance to race, racism around reggae music, mm-hmm. and the sound systems. The sound systems is something which, you know, was established in Jamaica, was the, the main medium for the dissemination of the music, the masses. Um, so we started to build sound systems in, in and have sound systems systems in England, um, which would play mostly in youth clubs, and um, um, occasionally people might hire the local town hall and put on dances. Our own thing, you know, and. Um, Reggae music was very important um, as a, in, 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 in providing us with a basis for um, um, an independent sense of identity because we wanted to be British and we saw ourselves as being British but we were rejected so we felt back on our native culture and um, the lyricism of reggae music was saying all the things that we felt. Mm-hmm. Although in Jamaica they were singing about the, you know, slavery and um, colonial, the whole ish- historical experience of slavery and what that meant, and, and the, the fact that the conditions of existence hadn't changed radically. Even though slavery had been abolished over a hundred years ago, and um, you know, we could identify um, those sentiments with our situation in England mm. and um, other institutions, you know, social institutions and and political institutions. The trade unions, for example, mm. saw their jobs as keeping blacks out um, of employment. You know, oh we don't want these niggas coming over here taking our jobs. Oh, yeah. Where they should have been, if they were smart, they should have once the, the, their their employers were employing black workers, the first thing they should have done, if I was the trade union represent I come and join the union, mate. Mm. You know, it's us the workers against the bosses. Yeah. You know. But I didn't understand that. Mm. <clears throat> and um, so we had to fight for these things. And the only way we could do that was from a position of autonomy, mm. from a position of strength. Um, hence, even in the churches, we were turned away from the churches in the early days. Mm. You know. um, you'd go to the Anglican church and... Um, After the service, the 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 the, the, the priests would say to you, um, um, "Please, um, you know, we we don't want to lose our congregation," and and so so the black churches started, and you know, for back in the days, um, the most organized section of our communities were the black churches, Mm. you know, Um, and then. But in saying that, um, I, don't want you to, I don't want to give you the impression that all white people were hostile to black people because it wasn't like that. Mm. There were a lot of progressive people mm. who we found um, solidarity with and who we could work together with. And um, the changes that occurred during the 1980s um, a, reflect, a reflection of those changes was that, by the end of the 1980s, one of the largest trade unions in England, the Transport and General Workers Trade Union, was led by a black man. I mean, that's progress, mm. you know. <laughs> a Jamaican guy named Bill Morris, who became Lord Morris.
1: Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> But so, in a sense, the exclusion, the rejection, fostered a kind of freedom as well.
2: No, no we fought against it. Yeah, we broke down the barriers. Mm. We 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 broke down the barriers. My generation, mm. we broke down the barriers through um, building these autonomous organizations mm. that you've talked about, and through our rebellion, nineteen eighty. 1981 uh, was the most significant period in, yes. the, in that history.
1: Could you, tell, could you tell kind of, me and the audience about your experience of 1981?
2: Well, 18, 1981 began rather tragically with the death of 13 young black children um, in the, what we call the New Cross Massacre, which was an arson attack on a, a party for a 16-year-old girl named Yvonne Ruddock. Um, and the arson attack resulted in a fire. Uh, 13 died, Fourteenth committed suicide. And, I mean, it was disgraceful the way official society responded. Well, there was no response at all. I mean, normally under those circumstances, the Queen sends a message of condolence, the Prime Minister sends a message of condolence. There was nothing. Nothing. Um, And the police... Instead of trying to get to the bottom of it and find the culprit, because there, there were all of the initial evidence pointed to a racist arson attack. Mm. That particular part of London was notorious f- as a hotbed of fascists. Um, they tried to cover up the whole thing. Indeed, they tried to to um, terrorize some of the victims. the the survivors into making false confessions Mm. to say they they started a fight and there was a a fire and so on. Of course that didn't work. But the response of the black community that was in January of 81, the response of the black communities was to form the New Cross Massacre Action Committee. Um, Chairman of that committee was John LaRose, again my mentor. Mm. And um, on the 2nd of March, we mobilized 20,000 people and marched for eight hours through London and shut down all sections of London. When we reached Fleet Street, where the newspapers are based, you know, the, 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 I call them the gutter press. You, could, you should have heard the race, racist abuse coming from, you know, the Daily Mail people and The Sun and all these newspapers. But it made the British establishment wake up. Twenty thousand people we mobilised. They'd never seen nothing like that. It, the most powerful expression of black political power, you know. And um, we had our supporters within the, 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 the left um, organisations and so on. But it was our autonomous action, and that's when the establishment began to take note of the fact that we had some power. Mm. 1985, um, of course, I missed out in 81 the Brixton Uprising, which mm. happened in April of that year, January, March, April, mm. three three months over which historic um, um, events occurred. Mm. Um, And the Brixton Riots, um, how it started was a guy, and some guys was in some, I don't know, fight or something. One, some guy got stabbed, and his mates, his friend, was trying to put him into a car to take him to the hospital, and the police stopped them. Mm -hmm. And uh, the whole thing kicked off as a result of that. But what caused the Brixton Riots was, the resentment and the bitterness that had been building over, building up over a long period of time and, 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 and the immediate bitterness that people felt about the new cross massacre and the way that um, the police had dealt with it, and um, those insurrections spread to every major inner city area in England, Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, you know the whole thing, and of course, we had other uprisings in 1985, after the police in Brixton, police came to kill a guy, uh, I forget his name, but his, his mother's name was Cherry Gross, and they kicked down the door, mm. and she, she went to run up the stairs, and they shot her in her back, you know, She was paradise for life and died eventually. And then in Tottenham, North London, they went after another guy. They were looking for some guy. Um, I forget his, his, his first name, his surname is Jarrett. They kicked down the door and pushed his mother down. She died of an heart attack. And they, well, the youth said, what, they're killing our mothers now? Another uprising, '85. All the major inner cities were on fire, and the government, under Margaret Thatcher, the conservative government of the day, um, decided that they had to do something. And it wasn't about racism; it was about it was about urban decay.
1: Of course, yes.
2: And uh, they had initiatives for urban regeneration. But that was when things, during that period, 81 to 85 was when things began to change. And by 1987, we had four black members of parliament. Mm.
1: Do you think a lot has changed since then to now?
2: Well, the old British political... Scene has changed a lot. Um, you know, uh, we've had 13 years of austerity
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, after the banking crisis. You know, um, the bankers ripped off the the the, the, the bankers. Um, you know, caused a financial crash, and um, um, the, the the debt was socialized which meant that ordinary people have to pay for it you know and um austerity 13 years of austerity um and um the politics has changed um after the the, the new labor um period of tony blair tony blair's government from 19 1997 to 2010, all that, all that's gone. And there is, there is no, the, 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 the left, the left has been really isolated in British politi- in the British political system now, and everything has gone to the centre. Mm. And so, if you're not, if your politics is not, is not somewhere slightly left of centre or slightly right, if you're not dealing with the centre, forget about it.
1: Mm. Because when you, when you talk about the 80s, there's so much that resonates, I think, with Britain today. For instance, the, the riots in London in 2011 as a response to the killing of Mark Duggan that you also mention here. Mm-hmm. And the New Cross massacre, of <coughs> course, is very reminiscent of the fire in the Grenfell Tower block. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: but the big difference between the Grenfell fire and the New Cross one was that there was so much outpouring of sympathy
1: yeah. from the people, mm.
2: you know. Whereas with the nuclear fire, there was nothing. There was none, mm. none at all.
1: Mm. No, it changed kind of how, where that sympathy came from as well. Maybe. Mm.
2: Um, Hold on a minute. How are we doing for time?
1: Ah, oh, we got, we got time. Uh,
2: huh?
1: Yeah, we got time. I've got a. How watch.
2: long have we been talking?
1: Um
2: are we got ten minutes left? About. All right, well just ask me one more question.
1: What one more?
2: Yeah, and then oh. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna recite some poems.
1: All of these people are here to listen to you.
2: Yeah, they want may, maybe they wanna hear my new poem. This
1: this guys. <laughs> believe me, when we have, have Linton Kwesi Johnson here, we'll make the most of the time. We'll have plenty of time to recite poetry as well. Um, <laughs> I'm a professional. You're the, b-
2: you're the boss.
1: <laughs> you should tell my mum. <laughs> but I, I, what I also wanted to talk about was this um, quote that you said. You said the purpose of the autonomous artistic movements. You quoted a, a woman who wrote about the Caribbean artists' movement, who was that?
2: Oh, Anne Walmsley.
1: Exactly, yes. The purpose was to discover your own, their own aesthetic, right? How, how did you discover your own aesthetic?
2: Well, I was a child of that movement. I, I, as I said, I am what the cooling embers of that movement mm-hmm. spawned. Um, I wouldn't expect the generation of writers, um, black British writers now, to um, to have the same kind of mindset because um, things have changed and we've broken down the barriers. Mm. So, um, you know, for me it's quite natural to hear, for example, um, a black British um, poet writing in the language of the East End rather than in the language of Jamaica. Um, um, But what I I hope that my example has has done is to give young writers, whether black or white, um, the idea that they too can be a poet and that they, too, can write, and that they don't, that they, they do, they don't necessarily have to come from an educated, middle-class background. That they, they, they don't necessarily have to have studied the classics from Greek literature mm. or Latin, um, and that, but that once they have a, an imagination, once they have an imagination that they can create, too,
0: mm.
1: I think you mentioned in your book as well that that you were speaking to was it Andrew Salkey? You said uh, something along the lines of, "Oh, I feel as though I don't have this background in poetry. I might." Oh, that thinking.
2: was Sam Selvin. Sam Selvin, and Salve, he says actually Trinidadian, novelist.
1: Yeah, and he says actually the it's actually better for you to not have that background.
2: Yes, he did say that. Yes, yeah. and uh, I was. I felt good uh, yeah. <laughs> me, you know. I was I was fortunate that people like that you know people who I looked up to and people who I admired um, who were charting their own own course um, in Caribbean literature, a literature that was true to their historical experience that um, um Like them, I didn't have to seek validation from the gatekeepers of the canon Mm. of British literature.
1: Mm. Maybe that's why they were so outraged. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Now you may read. Uh, (laughs) Thank
2: you. Thank you. Um, We haven't got much time for reading.
1: Oh, no, no, no. Please, please don't worry about it. I've been assured that you can take the time uh, you want. This
2: this hour is... uh, This event is one hour. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Reclaim your time. I... I, Okay. um, We're talking about my parents' generation. Um, So I want to recite a poem I wrote for my father who never went to England, my parents got separated when I was a kid, my mother went to England, married another guy, raised another family, my father stayed in Jamaica, had about six more children or whatever Um, and uh, he lived in the ghetto and had a hard life And he died when he was 56, having suffered a couple of strokes. He had diabetes, had his his legs amputated. Mm. Um, So he died in 1982. And I went to Jamaica to bury him. And uh, I wrote this poem, Reggae Fidada. But it's also a poem about Jamaica during the early 1980s. yeah. Galang Dada, Galang guanyasa. you never had no life to live, just the one life you give. You did your time on earth, you never get your just dessert. Galango smile in the sun, Galango sat in the palace of peace oh the water it's so deep the water it's so dark and it's full of harbor shock the land is like a rock slowly shattering to sun sinking in a sea of calamity where fear breeds shadows that lurks in the dark where people free to walk free to think free to talk where the present is haunted by the past. I deserve my barn, get to know about storm, learn to cling to the dawn. And when me hear my dad is sick, me quickly pop my grip and take a trip. Me never have no time when me reach, for sin a sunny beach when me reach. Just people are living in shock, people living back-to-back, monks cockroach and rat, monks dirt and disease, subject to terrorist attack, political intrigue, constant grief and a sign of relief. Oh, the grass turned brown, so many trees cut down and the land is overgrown. From country to town is just tistle and another of the wound of the poor, is a miracle how them endure, the pain night and day, the stench of decay, the glaring sights of guarded affluence, the arrogant vices, cold eyes of contempt, the mocking symbols of independence. Address of my bond, Get to know about storm, learn to cling to the dawn. And when the news reached me, send me one daddy, dead, me catch up playing quick. And when me reached my sunny isle, it was the same old style. The money well dry, the bullets them a fly. Plenty innocent a die, many rivers run dry. Ganja planes flying high. The poor man him a try. You think a little try him try, holding on by and by. When a dollar come, buy a little dinner for a fly. Kalang dada. Kalanguan yasa, you never had no life to live, just the one life you give. You did your time on earth, you never get your just dessert. Galango smile in the sun, Galango sat in the palace of peace. Me you know you couldn't take it, Dada. The anguish and the pain, the suffering, the problems, the strain. Struggling in vain, for make two ends meet. So that them pick me, could I get a little something to eat. To put clothes upon them back, to put shoes upon them feet. When a dollar came by, a little dinner for a fly. But no, you try, Dada. The fight a good fight. But the dice them did loaded and the card pack fix. Yet still you reach fifty six before you lose the leg wicket. I know your barn ground here. So we bury you a stranger's burying ground near to mum and cousin Doris. not far from the quarry down to August town. And I want to finish with one I wrote for my mother. Um, My mother went to England in the early 1960s and she spent 28 years or so. She went back to Jamaica Mm. to live in 1988. She's from a place called, she's from Clarendon, she came from a village called Sandy River in the parish of Clarendon. But she, when she went back, she went to live in Montego Bay. Anyway, um, she, um, she was quite contented with her life in Jamaica. And um, she, she comes from a, a rural peasant a peasant background. She had green fingers, you know, she had a beautiful garden. And there's a little shrub, um, a little bush in Jamaica that they call shame old Lady," because when you touch it, it wilts, all the petals fold in on themselves. Mm-hmm. so I, 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 I mentioned that in the poem so I'd go back to Jamaica every year, sometimes twice a year, but every Christmas for sure I would be in Jamaica spending Christmas with my mother. And um, it's around 2017, 2018, I saw that my mother was, was um, didn't have long on earth, so to speak. And for nearly... I can't remember how many years I'd never written, I hadn't written a poem Mm. because, you know, the muse, the muse is like a jealous woman and if you don't pay her attention, she will go away and I didn't pay the muse any attention. I was too busy doing gigs with the Dennis Bovell Dove band (laughs) to pay the muse any attention. I didn't write anything but my mother became my muse and I wrote this poem, Reggae for Mama, Sit on pan veranda in your wheelchair. She a more lady now growing at your gate. Your daughter them beard and powder you. Put you in a nappy like baby. Children are run up and down out a road. Them laughter is music in your ears. You is a big girl now in Sandy River. Bathing under the rose apple tree. Sit on the veranda in your wheelchair. In the calming evening atmosphere. No heaviness of heart. No worrying thought. Just a peaceful feeling deep within. Flowers in your garden please your eye. A ripe Julie mango drop a ground. Bird pan light pours a sing late song, you will wonder what tomorrow will go bring. Sit down pan veranda in your wheelchair, tongue full for the little cool breeze. Arthritis make your bone them betray you. No bitter taste linger pon your tongue. Battalions a cloud marching yonder, the weary sun soon gone to bed. Light a fade fast in the twilight. Time a draw near for sale. Good night.